0: From Times Square in Hong Kong, you're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: This might sound like a fun dance party, but it was no time for celebrations. Over the past couple of weeks, thousands of people gathered, protested, and marched on the streets of Glasgow during the COP26 conference. Activists and civil society groups took to the streets all weekend warning delegates that failure in the coming
0: week is not an option
1: Activists from around the world coming to the same place because of the same fear That planet Earth is in danger and politicians are failing to fix it
0: It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. This is no longer a climate conference This is now (laughs) A Global North Greenwash Festival. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah.
1: And now, COP26 has ended, the circus has left town, and the questions, hot takes, the analysis and the blame for what COP26 achieved have been published. But the reality of what has just happened is that one country... Looks like it's going to be doing some of the heaviest lifting over the coming decade. Welcome to part two of our COP26 edition of this Inside China podcast. My name is Holly Chick and I work here on the China desk of the South China Morning Post. China is the world's largest consumer of coal and the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Now, as you know, China's President Xi Jinping didn't go to Glasgow for COP26, which gave US President Joe Biden the perfect opportunity to score some political points.
0: Not only Russia, but China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate
1: change. President Xi didn't show up at COP26, but he had made climate change commitments before it, starting with the UN General Assembly meeting held earlier in September.
2: We need to accelerate transition to a green and low-carbon economy and achieve green recovery and development. China will strive to peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060.
1: But then, we had a welcome surprise. On Thursday, there was an unexpected announcement that China and the US, the two countries who seem to be disagreeing on everything, agreed to collaborate on fighting climate change. Here, I'd like to announce an important message. China and the United States have jointly released a China-US joint Glasgow Declaration on Enhancing Climate Action in the 2020. The United States and China have no shortage of differences, but on climate, on climate, Cooperation is the only way to get this job done. This is not a discretionary thing, frankly. This is science. It's math and physics that dictate the road that we have to travel. This surprise better good news lasted for an entire 36 hours before the conference ended. But then there was this announcement that's dominated news coverage ever since. We would like to express our profound disappointment that the language that we have agreed on, on coal and fossil fuel subsidies, has been further watered down. This will not bring us closer to 1.5, but make it more difficult to reach it. This is COP26 President Arlok Sharma reading out the formal statement to finish the conference.
0: History has been made here in Glasgow. And what we now need to ensure that the next chapter charts the success of the commitments that we have solemnly made together.
1: China and India, along with a massive lobbying effort from Australia, worked together to water down the final statement from COP26.
0: May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry.
1: Watching all of this from Singapore was Prakash Sharma. I would
2: say that COP26 was a success.
1: He spent the last 25 years analysing and researching China's energy and economic trends. This is his analysis of the results of the COP26 climate conference.
2: Finally, the participants were able to finalise the Paris rulebook. And if you recall, since uh, the Paris agreement that was signed in 2015, there had been negotiations around Article 6 uh, rulebook.
1: But what about the last minute compromise on call? Headlines around the world focused on China and India as the bad guys who
2: watered down the agreement. I guess China and India, in terms of the contrast, so so they are both of them are a coal-based economy. So coal plays a significantly uh, important role in their domestic economy because coal mining is is a major employer. Coal mining is also a a revenue generator for a number of provinces, both in China and India. So in that sense, they wanted to uh, kind of have their say in in kind of uh, phasing down coal. I, I think we also need to keep in mind that phase out of all fossil fuels in a 30 years time is is a huge ask is a huge ask so in our, in our opinion uh, that uh, phasing down of uh, fossil fuels by the time the alternative supply gets built and scaled up is probably a, a right way to the right way to go forward on this because you don't want to achieve these uh, these climate goals uh, and, and at the same time not meeting your energy requirements so 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 the world still has a long way to go especially asian economies and decarbonizing and energizing at the same time is a twin challenge And and Asian economies need to strike a right balance. There's a very
1: interesting point Prakash makes about China's transition away from coal that we haven't discussed in our previous podcasts. China has introduced emissions trading, opened its domestic electricity to market forces and massively expanded its solar and wind power generation. But there's another aspect to China's move away from coal that he wants us to know about.
2: Social transition and social development societal development is as important as uh, climate transition or energy transition or, or economic transition so because these 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 metrics are all Closely linked together. So, uh, a a country grows, it it consumes more energy, it consumes more energy. So, there is an upliftment of society uh, and and people uh, of it, uh, those people who don't have all the resources, all the benefits of a growing economy. So, so a sudden transition and and, uh, phasing out of uh, some of these uh, hydrocarbons, uh, there needs to there needs to be a balance they need to strike a balance between the two and and that is why uh, asia's transition uh, is is uh, is an important one uh, not only from an energy perspective but also from a societal and economic development perspective and and without the right balance there are going to be disruptions there are going to be more inequality in the society which probably is the last thing uh, a government would there's want there's
1: an estimated 4 million people working in- China's state-owned coal mines, many of those based in Shanxi province, southwest of Beijing. So how does he see this playing out, this industrial and social transition away from coal in China, over the next few years as we approach the year 2030?
2: So the Chinese government has this uh, common prosperity goal, and we think there is quite a bit of inequality in China as well uh, across different provinces. So the Chinese government is trying to, in a way, uh, redistribute wealth uh, and, and make it a much more uh, uh, equitable society, if I may, if I may call so. Uh, but these are all very difficult tasks. So uh, it may probably take much longer than eight years that, that the government is thinking. But uh, But if you look at it from a... Uh, 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 f- from the point of view of uh, what other countries have done. So, China wants to become a role model for other countries. So, they have uh, uh, kind of uplifted uh, nearly a few hundred million people in the last 30, 40 years from uh, the, the poverty levels to kind of more like uh, they, they improved this uh, life uh, and economic life and the social life by, by becoming an ind- industrial powerhouse and by growing its economy.
1: Adding to the list of problems with China wanting to move away from coal is how to make steel. China makes a huge amount of steel, which is crucial to its massive expansion of bridges, railways, cities and and everything else steel and iron is made for. And it sells huge amounts of steel to the world. It exported 43 million metric tons from January to July this year. And there's one major ingredient you need to make steel
2: so china is the uh, world's largest steel producer and china is also uh, world's largest consumer of uh, the steel making coal so china's coal based steel making is uh, is kind of uh, is likely to peak over the next 5 years or so and then it will, it will see a decline by that i mean is that the steel production probably will continue growing but Uh, but the production mix of steel is going to shift from coal-based to uh, electricity-based. So uh in terms of its coal consumption for steel production, we think it is going to take a much longer time for China to uh, materially reduce its coal, uh, coal share of steel, but China has to uh, look at a number of options to decarbonize its steel production, and those options are either you look at carbon capture storage or you look at hydrogen-based steel baking, because in order to decarbonize steel, these are the uh, now there are not many options because you can't uh, fully electrify your steel production because uh, uh, it's it's a process that requires uh, melting of iron and uh, uh, production of steel. So there are also process-related emissions that can't be uh, uh, ignored. So so China has to look at and and deploy newer technologies such as CCS and hydrogen to be able to uh, uh, decarbonize steel and it is not only China which is facing this challenge uh, the US Europe Japan which are all major uh, steel producers they are also looking at uh, newer technologies to be able to uh, decarbonize steel so it, it is going to take longer time but purely from a uh, from where the current production mix of steel uh, looks in China so China is already on its way to start uh, uh, reducing uh, coal-based steel from 2025 onwards and start producing more electricity-based steel.
1: You're going to hear much more talk of something called green steel over the next months and years. That's where the traditional furnaces of steel mills get powered by hydrogen instead of coal. The very first batch of the world's first green steel was delivered in August this year by a company in Sweden. The process to change steel mills over to hydrogen-based power is starting slowly, and Prakash said it's going to take a lot longer for China to catch up on that front. In the meantime, he reckons the much more important job is to take existing carbon emissions out of the air by using carbon capture technology. One small problem, though. No one in the world has been able to show this technology works in a big scale. There are pilot projects happening around the world, but there's also the existing technology for taking carbon dioxide out of the air. Trees. And since 1978, China has been planting millions upon millions of trees in a project originally designed to hold back the expansion of the Gobi Desert. The project is officially known as Sanbei Fanghuling. In English, it's the Three North Shelter Forest Programme, but it's better known as the Great Green Wall. Just to get an idea of the size of the Great Green Wall, I want to see if you can imagine the size of the state of Texas, like the entire state of Texas. And now split it in half. That's how big the area of tree planting is. It's 88 million acres of trees. The tree plantings are planned to continue to the year 2050, making it the world's largest carbon sink. But there are problems.
2: So nature-based solutions are also going to play an important role. I think, as I said, depending on the country, depending on its current emissions level, All these options are to be considered and deployed at scale. So nature-based solutions such as planting trees is is an important aspect of the transition because you have to create these carbon sinks. I think the important point is that you need to be transparent about how much carbon you think these these forests and these uh, these, trees. tree planting activities are going to capture because it is not going to happen overnight. You plant a tree today, so it will take at least 10, 15, 20 years to be able to uh, absorb that carbon that you want. But at the same time, you need to protect your trees because the warmer climate becomes, the heat waves, they are going to destroy existing forests as well.
1: You can't have carbon sinks if you can't grow trees because the climate is just too harsh. Which just adds to China's challenges. It's been fighting back the Gobi Desert in the north since 1978. And is now committed to a more complicated struggle. The one to transition away from coal. So as a veteran analyst and researcher of China's energy sector, what does he think is the most interesting thing to come out of China's involvement in COP26? What happens next?
2: The last 40 years of China have been very different but the next 40 years of china are going to look much different uh, from a transition perspective how it grew how it distributed the wealth how it uh, it, it consumed energy produced energy so uh, I guess it's it's a very delicate path China is uh, today, uh, but uh, I'm looking at it from a very positive angle. I think China could set a precedent for, for, for world for many generations and decades to come that here was a country who, who grew in the prior 40 years in a very different manner, but then changed course. Quite dramatically, and set an example for for the world uh, how and and, uh, what a clean economy or a green economy should look like and what energy resources it should be consuming, what energy technology it should be consuming. And as I said, it is not only the energy sector that is going to be important, and and it is going to be much wider kind of a nature-based or nature-driven society that is going to be important. And maybe if I may make one last point from a COP perspective, and you asked whether or not it was a success, I think in a multipolar world with competing and conflicting goals that we see today, I think COP was was a good outcome.
1: It's interesting Prakash mentions the last 40 years of China and how technology will change its economy and society. Because 40 years ago... China was a nation who rode bikes. As China opened up in the 1970s and 80s, more and more people bought bicycles. By the 1980s, China earned a nickname as the Kingdom of Bicycles. By 1995, there were more than 8 million bicycles just on the roads around Beijing. Then, in the mid-90s, as China's economy rolled into life and the middle class expanded, the government shifted its attention to the auto industry. Bike lanes were replaced and a kingdom of bicycles, became the empire of the automobile. Cars became the new middle-class status symbol. As people made more money, they started to buy more cars. In 1980, less than 2 million people owned cars. In 2016, that number shot up to 185 million. But a combustion car is not the end of the automobile's evolution a quiet revolution has been taking place. The EVs are here. If you step into a luxury mall in China, chances are you not see just one, but several showrooms for electric vehicles. And in China, Tesla is just one of the many industry players. To lower its emissions, China has to electrify everything. The city of Shenzhen has taken the front seat on electrifying its transportation sector. Besides the usual electric cars, it also has electric buses and electric taxis. In 2020, there were just under 5 million EVs in China. But the government has set a target to increase EV ownership from 5% to 40% by 2030. That means, by then, there will be 80 million EVs on China's roads. In our last episode, we spoke about the massive expansion of solar and wind power for China's energy market. Let me introduce you to someone who's been studying the one thing that is crucial to the development of electric vehicles, bicycles, ships, as well as solar and wind power. So my name is Xu Le. You can call me Le, yeah. Xu is the researcher studying the energy storage market in the Asia-Pacific region. And by that, I mean she's the person you want to talk to about batteries. Not just the batteries that go into iPhones and Teslas. Big batteries that can power a house, or an entire factory, or even entire cities. But more importantly, they also change the game for solar and wind power, Because for the last five years or so, the one thing that climate change deniers and fossil fuel advocates always say about renewable energy is this. The sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. In our last episode, you heard Norway-based energy market analyst Yanqing talk about the major announcements back in October that changed the rules of China's energy markets and made solar and wind energy much more competitive against coal. There was something solar else energy, that was new so, and the wind energy, energy policy. big, energy is kind of
0: weather-dependent de- technology, right? So they always generate the power when the weather is ready, like when it's clear sky and for solar and when have the super heavy wind, you know, for the wind turbine, so they can really turn. So that is the perspective. So that's why the storage is important for the grid because they can smooth out this energy output and charging during the
1: daytime and in the evening time. In our last episode, you heard Norway-based energy market analyst Yanqing talk about the major announcements back in October that changed the rules of China's energy markets and made solar and wind energy much more competitive against coal. There was something else that was new in China's energy policy, big battery storage. But was this the first time China had talked about this technology? Absolutely, the first time. This kind of policy
0: have not happened before. But obviously, I think um, because China really committed um, to achieve the carbon neutrality by 2060. So that's announced by, uh, you know, in 2020. And so the country started to really seriously and to decarbonize power. So this is the first time to see uh, they have the big policy that's
1: coming, not only for energy storage, but also the pump hydro storage. Now, when Le talks about pumped hydro storage, she means electricity from one of China's massive hydroelectric schemes. It's the second biggest source of energy after coal for China, but there are issues. The biggest one is there aren't enough big rivers for China to build dams on, and not everyone lives near them. China's a big place. But China has a big advantage with battery production. It controls over 75%, it controls over seventy-five percent of the world's lithium battery production. So, does this give China a big advantage in getting into large-scale storage?
0: Yeah, you're right. So, China definitely has some uh, good advantage and to ramp up the battery um, capacity. And uh, so, uh, one thing, if you take looks at the demo projects, so China normally demonstrate. Um, like 100 megawatt scale of the pilot projects in different provinces. But in other countries, they only demo like 10 megawatt scale of batteries or some 20 megawatt. So one of the key key reasons is because the battery cost in China is much lower than other countries. For example, we um, had some research back to 2020. We see like the capex for two hours Batteries only 550 US dollar um, per kilowatt. Uh, but for Australian, you have to pay the double, like around 990 US dollar per kilowatt. So that means that if for developers um, for China, actually, you pay less and, and to build up the energy storage projects. Uh, in terms of supplies, if you take a look at so the whole um, supply chain locate, um, distribution, so you can see the whole the APAC actually host more than 80% of the global manufacturing uh, supply. Uh, That's back to 2020. And China actually hosting roughly 75% of the global cell production. So that is a huge number. So the rest of the 25% of the production um, actually is from South Korea, Japan, and also Europe, like Poland, and also US. Um, so in terms of economics of the scale, so definitely China have the bigger advantage.
1: But with the huge interest in buying a new EV, as well as everyone wanting the latest smartphone with a fully charged battery, comes the obvious next step. Supply chains are already strained and the price of lithium-ion batteries is going to increase in the short term. And that's where La points us to another development in China announced in July this year. New developments in a different kind of battery, known as sodium-ion battery. This technology has been around for 50 years, but recent developments have changed the game. Is this a sign of hope for China and its push for renewable energy? Good
0: question. So uh, at the time when the product was um, launching um, the end of July, uh, so they plan to massive production, produce these um, sodium-ion batteries. In 2023, but what I see from the markets and the news, so they actually already got the 30 supplier and working on this supply chain um, of the sodium and iron batteries. So likely they can mass and produce the battery cell slightly earlier than 2023. Might be the end of 2022, so that means the next year.
1: A massive increase in battery production, a massive increase in electric vehicle production, is going to help drive China towards an energy transition over the next few years. But a massive increase in coal mining and coal-powered electricity in the short term in China is going to keep its carbon emissions high as well. But there's one other thing that you should keep in mind. In the lead-up to the COP26 conference, China had one thing that no one else in the world had, and that was massive power outages. No lights, no heating, no escalators, no elevators, and for many people, no work. And this, more than anything, is fueling a change in opinion about China's energy mix.
0: I think everyone definitely shocked by the power crunch. <laughs> because this has never happened before. It's also the first time happening in China, and especially the big impact for the heavy electricity usage and for refining industry. But the question is like a power crunch, whether they will happen in China again, or again, again, for the next few years. So that is the question, Mark, whether it's a one-time event or the serious events for China. So what I can say, like people now they realize they wanted the power arms and they want to have their own control for the power. Either they can build up a solar system or build a solar and battery system.
1: There are deep changes happening, not just within China's energy industry, but within the attitudes of people towards how they get their power how deep those changes are and how it affects the ongoing climate crisis are something that is going to affect the world. If you want to find out more about China's battery industry, the different companies making EVs, or indeed how the ongoing energy crisis are playing out, Head to SEMP.com for all the latest news and in-depth analysis. My name is Holly Chick. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Hey, it's Jasmine, one of the SEMP podcast producers. We've got a brand new podcast newsletter called Listening Post you'll be able to read about our latest episodes from Inside China and China Geopolitics. We're also going to include reviews of other podcasts from around Hong Kong and around the world that we've been listening to. And we'll bring you highlights from SCMP Podcast Archive, from food, technology, to deep dives and future stories. Listening Post launches next Friday on November 19th. Sign up now at scmp.com newsletter, or just click the link in the podcast description.